0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the No Laying Up Podcast. Sali here, an absolute thrill to bring you for the first time Adam Scott on this podcast. Want to give a special shout out to our friends at the Slink Dubai Desert Classic for helping set this up. The Slink Dubai Desert Classic, fondly referred to as the major. Of the Middle East because of its legacy and the world class field that it attracts every year. It's the longest running European tour event held outside of mainland Europe. It began in 1989. It's going to take place this week from January 27th through the 30th. This is the 33rd staging of the event, now an elevated to a Rolex series event, prize fund of $8 million. Held at the Emirates Golf Club, the first fully grassed 18-hole course in the region. A roll of honors features 11 different major champions, including the likes of Tiger Woods, Rory McIlroy, Seve Ballesteros, Ernie Els, many, many more. Many memorable moments to look back on. The winner gets their hands on an instantly recognizable trophy, which is a huge replica of the traditional Arabian coffee pot known as the Dala Trophy. Players in the field for this year include defending champion Paul Casey, world number two Colin Morakawa, Rory McIlroy, Sergio Garcia, and also playing our major champions, Shane Lowry, Project Harrington, Henrik Stenson, many European Ryder Cup heroes are teeing it up, including Lee Westwood, Tommy Fleetwood, Ian Poulter. This year also marks the first year on their journey to becoming GEO certified. They've signed the UN Sports for Climate Action Framework. It's a pledge to promote sustainability. They're going to be using solar panels to power whole sections of the tournament, as well as a shift to biofuel. So follow this link, DDC, social channels for exclusive content and highlights while the live action will be beamed to a worldwide audience on broadcast sports networks including golf channel and sky sports in the uk without any further delay here is our interview with adam scott so off the top of your head you got to answer as fast as possible do you know how many years for you this is now out on tour 21 is it 20 I, yeah. I, I don't know i don't know think, I didn't I look think it up.
1: More. 22 maybe 22 <laughs> does it feel like it's been that long no it doesn't really no that's a lot of years that's half my more than half my life it's a lot of golf, but no, it doesn't. I I really think the tour kind of keeps you young at heart some way. I've probably aged plenty, but I don't feel like it. <laughs>
0: well, it's funny because you know, I got a lot to lot to ask you, but one of those things is we don't really know when you're gonna pop up. Golf fans, you know, you you're you're a global traveler, you play everywhere, and you know, you know, we're recording this ahead of Abu Dhabi. You're gonna play Abu Dhabi this coming week, and then you're also teeing it up in the Slink Dubai Desert Classic. I saw the, you haven't played there since 2002. Does that sound right? What made you change your schedule <laughs> I around? Think so.
1: Lots of things, you know, been quite a few changes the last couple of years for everybody, of course, but also um, my family's relocated uh, and we're living back in Europe and this Middle East swing is obviously very convenient. It's very close by and it made sense for me, but also when you've been out here 20 something years, you know, occasionally you need to switch things up. You need to switch the schedule up. You've got to, you got to keep it fresh, and uh, it feels a bit like that uh, again for me coming back to the Middle East after so long. And I've had some success in this region too. I won in Qatar twice uh, earlier in my career, so I'm looking forward to coming back and playing in the Middle East, uh, especially Dubai. It's been 20 years <laughs> since I played there, which is incredible. So
0: I, we, it may be a whole separate non-golf podcast that we do sometime down the road. I got a lot of golf questions to ask you, but. You know, you 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 famously have a very private life, and we could we could talk some about that. But what do you what do you do in Dubai? It's a you know I, I'm curious about what you do off the course in in a city like Dubai.
1: Well, it's been so long since I've been there, is uh, I think it's going to be unrecognizable. Obviously, I've seen it on the telecast of the tournament in recent years, and I'll just talk about little bits. I know like Dubai Marina wasn't there when I played there last time, and now there's a hundred something skyscrapers around the marina. So it's going to be quite an experience going back there. I, I know it's pretty hectic. There's plenty of things. My family's going to be with me and they're going to want to check a few things out for sure. So I think I've got to take a trip and see this Burj Khalifa, the tallest building. I mean, I think that's if there's one <laughs> tourist kind of thing that I get up to that week, I've probably got to go down and see that with my own eyes.
0: Well, so tell me about you say you're living full-time or you're living now in europe i don't know what full-time constitutes for you because you've yeah i right. I, I, I don't know where you live and i follow golf extremely closely <laughs> i know there's bahamas australia but i just in reading about what the last two years have been like for you i feel like that's kind of an underreported story in the world of golf in terms of the quarantining you've had to do i'm wondering if you could kind of tell us about that and maybe why you ended up you know living in europe
1: now yeah i think look until about may last year it was very very difficult not being based in the united states the quarantining situation i think i think from when the pandemic started in Mar- march we'll call it 2020 until may of last year i think the total was 16 weeks of quarantine that i did in isolation it was obviously not very productive for for anything almost everything you know golf my family everything and that was wearing, but the last eight or nine months of the year were fairly manageable. Things became a little bit easier, which is great. And hopefully, hopefully now this is all gonna continue in that way. But we we made the decision to kind of put our kids in school in Switzerland, where I've always, always had a place and, and been based, but they've hit that age where we kind of make, gotta kind of put those decisions in play too. And my wife being European, obviously uh, wants to be closer to her family too. So, you know, uh, I've hit that point a little bit where you have to really balance everything. You know, I still feel like I have a setup around me that's going to help me play top level golf and I'm looking forward to doing that.
0: So how does that work then, you know, just logistically, if you're playing tournaments in the United States, how do you... How do, when do you decide you're going back to Europe or do you go to the Bahamas? How did you, maybe that's a different answer now than it has been in the past or when you would be going back to Australia. Is it a different schedule kind of that you run every year? I'm just always curious. It's Sunday nights when
1: guys leave where they end up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't bounce back and forth much. Um, really since moving uh, more permanently into Switzerland, I haven't been able to do it the way I wanted wanted to. It wasn't the plan to do it in the middle of COVID. Obviously, there's been restrictions to what we can do. But normally, I spend uh, December and January, let's call it, in Australia, and I play the events down there that everyone sees on TV, mostly the Australian Open and the Australian PGA, which is actually on as we're talking right now, back at home, but very difficult to still get home uh, and be able to be able to play in that i don't I don't think any of the u s tour base guys went home to play this year, so hopefully next year we get back to do that and uh and then obviously spend most of the spring in the united states um you know I, I love the west coast, but then especially Riviera, but then also going into Florida, and we all have augusta on our mind at the end of that kind of run in the spring, so a lot of time spent there and then more time spent back in Europe, traveling back and forth through uh, into the su- into the summer, let's say, uh, when the Open's back in Europe as well. So it's not that many trips, although with COVID, it's been a couple more because my family hasn't been traveling. So sometimes it, it was getting so long, you kind of forgot I had a <laughs> family on the other side of the world and I was just away in my uh, golf bubble in the States.
0: Well, it was kind of funny to me. We interviewed Ernie Els in Germany about four years ago now. And he, you know, we came into the interview and he just straight up says like, look, I'm jet lagged. And it was kind of funny to me. (laughs) I guess not funny may not be the right word, but he, in all of his years of traveling and playing competitive golf, like never figured out how to address jet lag. Have you figured out, do you have any tips or or tricks to, or do you still get affected by jet lag as many times you've been around the world?
1: I mean, really, I think flying east is the hardest. So when You know, that that just is hard work. So that's going home from the States to Europe. It's a few days of, uh, you know, really trying to get yourself back on schedule. That is not ideal for sure. Flying West is no problem. You know, I did a lot of traveling, I guess the first 10 years of my career and a little less the last 10. Certainly a, a much bigger focus on playing just the US tour. So, you know... I've definitely tried some stuff. I've done the fasting, you know, where you don't eat for like 16 hours and reset your food food clock or whatever. I find that much more effective than trying to sleep on the right time days before you leave or anything. So, but I think it's worse as I'm getting older than jet lag. Like, it's getting tougher for sure. That's what uh, he said uh, too. Like, yeah. Yeah. I think it is. Or we're getting softer as we get older. But, you know, like I said before, I'm trying to balance it all out, and uh, there aren't that many trips back and forth to Europe. It's maybe four for the year. I think it's manageable.
0: yeah, it's one thing, you know people rolling into a vacation on jet lag, but when your your body you're is required to be in top peak performance, you know for peak performance, your body clock needs to be right. I just always find it interesting how people how people manage that. But, I gotta say, you know, we as as golf fans, we we don't see know a ton about, we don't see a a huge glimpse into your life very often. You're not a social media guy, yet, you know. I I just want to know how you would describe your specific approach towards being a global sportsman, yet also actually maintaining a real private life. You know, is that something you've had to learn, or is that something you were conscious of from day one, or am I even accurately describing it well?
1: Yeah, I at times it's conscious that I turn down opportunities to do things or uh, be a little more in the spotlight over the years. But out of respect for my wife and my family too, that's not something they're really seeking either. And I don't think it's necessarily I'm something I'm uh, naturally seeking. I think I accept that if I play good, there's some attention coming my way. And that's absolutely fine and i and i'm very happy to deal with that but it's not something i i actively seek that's for sure i'd love to be um (laughs) getting some more of it through good play (laughs) this upcoming year and win a few big tournaments but um yeah i i think you know i've tried to stay fairly grounded and tried to keep everything in perspective and and some of that i think has helped my career some may have hurt my career as well i mean i think one of the big things is and it's so cliche but i just try and be myself and i and i try and make good decisions for all aspects of my life including my golf and 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 you know that's being honest with myself and you know i sit here and people could certainly think well i'm getting older and i've moved to europe but uh, I actually think it's going to help me play better the next few years, not, not worse. You know, I'm in a place where I want to be, where I feel really good, where my home environment is incredibly good. uh, And, um, you know, I think that's going to be a benefit for my golf the next few years of my career.
0: That's what I think. Do I have it right that, you know, I forgot this fact too, but in my research, saw you were sixth in the world when the pandemic hit. Does that, does that sound right?
1: Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah that was I was playing re- really really well I was you know I'd just won uh Riviera which was a big event a great field and tournament I love and I was playing really nicely even at the players I played really nicely that first day and you know the Masters was just a few weeks later and obviously thinking about that uh and being ranked uh right up there I I was I was really um really looking forward to it and you know I really lost all that momentum and it's and it's been a battle to be honest to get it back uh, since but i i kind of chipped away at the back half of last season and felt like i played a little better even though not all my results were great so i'm looking forward to this year
0: well it's funny i was listening to um i'm gonna forget the name of it now that the watch podcast that you were on a few years ago um starts with an h oh yeah yeah. Um, oh,
1: Dinky.
0: Oh, Dinky. That's right. Yeah. And you said something on there about when well, you know when you're playing good, you never think you're going to hit a bad shot again, and when you're playing poorly, you never... <laughs> that's right. <laughs> I feel like in that last answer, you kind of went through both of those cycles of you know you were you know playing great, uh, you know leading up to it, and then haven't played maybe as good, you know. But you had some you know some flashes going back to the Wyndham last year. You know you're in a playoff for. It doesn't feel like your confidence level seems very high coming into this this coming year. Is that was that well uh, accurately stated?
1: No, it's really accurate. I I feel like I'm in a really good place. I don't think I ever play particularly poorly. I mean, that average on tour doesn't get you very far in much. You know, you need to be playing really well. We all know how deep it is out there now. And guys are on. Look at the scoring. It's insane. I think it was a five undercut, five undercut at Wiley, uh this week. You know, it. I've played there for a long time. And that that's can be a tricky little golf course. And that's really deep for two days there. Uh, you don't have to do a lot wrong to shoot four or three under there and and you're going home. So um, you've got to really be on. And, uh, you know, I think observing this scoring has changed my attitude going into this year a little bit uh, that I that I need to kind of get a little more aggressive on the course right out of the gate and just go on. You know, get swinging at it, and if I miss a couple more cuts here and there, then that may be the case. But there, are, there are so many guys really swinging for the fences and and attacking golf courses and shooting low scores. You've got you've got to somehow muster up twenty birdies a week to to have a chance. So you better be aggressive because it's hard to make enough putts from thirty five feet if you're not playing aggressive.
0: It's easy to fall back on, uh, that. you know, golf has gotten so much more competitive over the last 20 years. And I think I'm wondering, I don't know how to ask this, but I'm wondering if you could describe the uh, the timeline of that, right? I feel like that conversation has really ramped up in the last five years. And to your point, the way this season has started, it's, it's just insane. I mean, the scoring at Kapalua, it was soft, of course, and there was no wind and things like that. But I feel like it is really even... If I may say, it seems like there is a wave of people coming and have entered the tour that were kids and impressionable when Tiger was doing his thing and came out. And like, we haven't really totally seen the effect of all of that, maybe until the last four, five, six years. I don't know. How would you describe that?
1: Yep. I, there's no doubt there's the Tiger effect. He's affected everything in the game for the last 25 years, however long he's been around. And, um, you know, I think the competitiveness. I think, and I'm going to single someone out, rightly or wrongly, but I I think it started when Jordan Spieth came out. That's when I really noticed it. And here's a guy who had a stellar junior and amateur career in college, uh, and came out, and he was maybe 22 or 23 when he came out, and but he played like a 10-year veteran on the tour. His head was so mature, and Uh, No doubt inspired by Tiger and uh, everything that Tiger had done. The perfect age to just follow in his footsteps, let's say. But also the information that's been collected now over the last 20 years and been able to be processed and then given to young players to help them with managing their game and understanding how to score better. And that process used to take four, five, 10 years of experience on tour to learn how to be a a smart golfer. You know, let's call it that. And now I feel like kids come out of college with that already. And when Jordan Spieth comes out and breaks through quickly, Justin Thomas looks across and goes, hang on a second. I was just beating him six months ago in college. (laughs) He believes he can do it too. And that effect happens. And they've all got this great information now coming out with like, The actual data, not myths of like, when it's breezy, swing easy, like we we used to have in golf, you know, little things like this. There's actual data and and the stats to back it up that, you know, hit it down there on this hole, keep it in the right side. It doesn't even matter if it's in the rough, get a wedge on up to the green. you do better than laying up with the three iron off the tee, you know, this kind of stuff. So they are much smarter golfers now coming out. And that's why it's got so competitive. I mean, everyone's better, quicker.
0: What are your thoughts on that style of play or either, you know, I don't know if it is, I don't know where you can point in any timeline as to how golf evolved into what you're talking about, hit it down there. You can wedge it out of the rough versus taking three iron, whether that's, you know, it's always been the case or equipment has led that to becoming the the case where that it becomes the best strategy because, you know, when you're not hitting it as far, you know, when you're hitting seven irons out of the rough versus five irons from the fairway, maybe that's a different question than, seven iron out of the fairway and wedge out of the rough. What are your thoughts on the way the game has evolved in that way? And has it, I don't know, has it gotten dumbed down a little bit to that point of like,
1: hit it far out there, go keep it within the corridors, find it and wedge it on. It's a fine line for sure. And I don't know where that line is. Like, is it seven iron versus wedges or seven irons versus five irons in the rough and fairway? I don't know where the line is exactly. It's always been a little bit that way, but I think more guys are able to shift the ball down there now I think guys are generally better athletes let's say that generally able to swing at a a higher speed and the equipment encourages that and it also helps that too so there's so many factors in this and and that's how it's evolved in the professional game and you know maybe no one's pushed it well no one has pushed it further than Bryson of course and he's done incredible and he's proven it at a US Open as well, that he that he can play good like that and win a US Open convincingly as well. I gotta add. <laughs> the only difference I see, and it's not a criticism at all of anyone, it's just an observation, is that the consistency is not the same as as the previous generation or the generation before that, in my in my opinion. And that's doesn't make it better or worse at all. It's just my observation. I think we all play a little more gung-ho and when we're on, it's incredible stuff. You know, watching DJ when he's at full flight is just insane. So is Rory. And, but I just don't think they play at that consistency like obviously Tiger did, but even Phil and Ernie and uh, Ratif and VJ, and then before that, Norman and Faldo and and that generation, they, they seem to have it at the major every time. Um in fairness, guys guys string twelve or eighteen months together, but I think these guys strung decade or well, a decade together where they were like that now. And John Ram's playing really consistently well, so he might have found you know the perfect spot.
0: A quick break here to check in with our friends at Callaway. I told you guys that we had some cardboard boxes that were starting to show up at the Kill House. That means our new equipment is here. The utility wood has finally come in for me. I've been talking about getting it for a long time. I know DJ got his and loved it. It's looking like a golf club that I'm going to be able to land and hold greens with from about 235 to 240, which is exactly what I'm looking for. Haven't tried it on the course yet. Also showing up are our drivers. I need to get with my guy TC. They have so many offerings when it comes to the driver that you got to make sure you're getting the right one. The Rogue ST Max D, which is a more forgiving model for players who slice, all the way up to a compact... Low spin head for better players in the Rogue ST Triple Diamond LS. I think that's what I need, but you really need to talk to a fitter. Callaway Golf offers free custom fittings over the phone with their distance fitting program. I think you just kind of every year you're going to need to do a little bit of tweaking, a little bit of understanding. You need to have a background understanding of what the different clubs are going to give you you can go to callawaygolf.com slash custom fitting to get that information. I can't wait to get my stuff dialed with this new Rogue ST. Again, callawaygolf.com slash custom fitting to figure out which Rogue ST model is great for you. Let's get back to Adam Scott. Tying back in what we were talking about, though, with it getting more and more competitive every year, it might just be harder and harder to string a decade together, yeah. right? Where if you're absolutely, if you're off by a half of a standard deviation, that that no longer means maybe you're a top 10 player in the world, and that's... uh. Yeah, it, it seems like it's getting harder and harder and harder to separate yourself out, and that's what makes what John Rahm is doing right now extremely impressive. Even if the wins haven't, you know, necessarily been racked up, it uh, to be up there at that consistency. That's that seems to be like what so many guys fall back on talking about their games. That they're looking for like what John is doing. You want to, you know, you want your peak weeks, of course, but everyone seems to be wanting to, uh, you know, increase their consistency. Is that? Can you speak to that at mm-hmm. all?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I I think it's it's something is an enviable thing to have, being really consistent. If you're playing at John Ram's level, he's playing consistently well all the time. Is he racking up enough wins? I think if he just keeps doing what he's doing, he's going to win a lot of tournaments and he's going to be really great. One of the all-time greats. But for me, I'm now at a point where I'd rather drop a bit of consistency and just rack up some wins, you know, when I'm on, not talking about consistency, but I just look at Brooks and think, you know, he got it together for a couple of years here and bagged four majors and maybe two other events, but he played well on the right weeks in my opinion. And, and I think anybody out there would be pretty happy if I (laughs) dangled four majors in front of their nose over the next three years, let's say. Hmm.
0: Well, you had a, a comment. I don't remember exactly when this was said. I think it was, uh, you know, in a press conference or something at some point. You said, uh, "I think you got to identify. There's probably ten or twelve serious competition events during the calendar year, and the rest is a bit of entertainment, really." But the thing for all of us is trying to peak for those ten or twelve serious events uh, and use those entertainment events to get prepared and get ready. I, I don't, I, 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 don't know what my question is in relation to that, other than trying. To, what are those events in your mind? And has that landscape? changed over the years right because it feels like we are every year we're adding on at least maybe coming off this last 15 16 months or whatever with olympics and all the majors that were jammed in wgc's players all this stuff it it's really hard to get really amped up for individual big events when there seems to be so many big events i don't know if you have any perspective to add on that comment you made
1: yeah i think i think i don't know what the question was asked i can't remember that but i i kind of I think everyone's probably got the four, certainly four of the same important sure. events. And and then you have, you know, for me, you know, I love the players, I love Riviera, I love the Australian Open. You know, it's got a a sentimental place in in my ranking of these ten events that I think are really important, and they're the ones I peak. But you know, you can't peak for 20 to 25 events a year. It's just not gonna happen. And the way I look at it is you want to look at where you want to peak and which ones are really important for you to play in and then use the other events that you're required to play in to get to where you, get to where you want to be. But when, when tours, whether it's the PGA Tour or European Tour, have 52 events, I mean, you can't treat them all as um, serious championship golf. Uh, you can't play them all for one, but they can't all be so important. You know, we have to have some separation. And so in my mind, I pick the ones I like, basically.
0: On this podcast, we talk a lot about, you know, the seeming shifting tides of professional golf with challenging tours and the tour's response to challenging tours. Where, How do you, where from where you're sitting, how familiar are you with changing tides? Would you describe it like that? Or how do you see, th- see things shaking out?
1: Yeah, it could be a bit of changing tides. I mean, everything changes uh, eventually. I mean, if, if stuff stays the same, it's not going to go well. Certainly in this kind of fast, evolving world we're living in now, I mean, technology you know, if you're not moving forward, you're in real trouble. So everything's got to change. And this has certainly been interesting last year, let's say, um, with challenging tours and, and the moves other tours have made, (laughs) you know, jockeying for position, uh, to kind of hold that, hold their ground or uh, cement their place, uh, in professional golf. I think it's an interesting place being a international player looking at this. And, you know, I sit from an Australian perspective and see Australian professional golf, really struggling, not necessarily in talent, but on what's on offer at home has really, really suffered over the last 20 years, I would say. Um, it's been a slow decline. And we were fortunate to have Greg Norman, and he inspired a generation, and then Jason Day, and I both became world number one and won majors. But it wasn't enough to, to keep things going in Australia. So, you know, I think change for the international side of things certainly would be a good thing of course the US tour doesn't want too much change uh, internationally or challenge because it could affect their tour in a negative way potentially I don't know if uh, I, I feel like there's room outside of the United States certainly for for some big events to happen around the world and I and I certainly would support that. That's what
0: uh, thing I wanted to ask as well is that Australia truly has some of the greatest golf courses in the world. Yet we very infrequently, if ever, see the top players in the world compete on those courses. And we did get to see that in December of 2019, and it was honestly some of the best golf viewing for a golf junkie like that I've ever seen. A firm and fast Royal Melbourne that was set yeah. up absolutely perfect. You know there was. I don't think there was a drop of water that was put on that golf course that week. (laughs) And it was great. Right. And I I just wonder how we get to a place if we ever do where, you know, I think there was a WGC down in Australia in the early two thousands that people didn't show up for and they panicked and never went back. Does that sound right? But how can, how can we change? How can we get the top players in the world to Australia to play? What would have to change to do that?
1: Well, uh, it's not so much the players. I think, just how you describe Royal Melbourne, everyone really loved their experience uh, playing the Presidents Cup down there. And if if you're any kind of golfer, it'd be hard to not like playing at Royal Melbourne. It, it's it's fantastic. It's a different style of golf, but it's a fantastic style of golf. But you know, this is the commercial realities of professional golf, and that's what it is. It's a business. It's a business uh, for the players it's a business for the pga tour and you know the market is not huge in australia so someone's not making a lot of money by doing an event down there and these are the realities but for the balance of the whole thing you know we hear grow the game grow the game so much but you know i think that's wonderful but if someone doesn't make money then they don't grow the game in certain play i'm not just saying australia it could be other places too but I feel like, and of course I'm biased, but I would love to see the top players come down to Australia a little more often. I think it'd do wonders for golf in our country moving forward. And also I think everyone would enjoy it very much. So hopefully we can get down there a little more often than every kind of 12 or 20 years for the president's cup or whatever it is.
0: That's where I I, I think you know, at some point there needs to be some shifting towards the entertainment aspect of golf for golf fans. And maybe Mm -hmm. this is just me as the golf sicko. And maybe it doesn't, maybe watching golf in Australia, isn't that appealing to the masses. And that's how a lot of decisions are made with the entertainment aspect of professional golf. But at a certain point, it, it, you know, everything, especially with all these conversations around the, you know, the, the things that are being done to sweeten the pot for the different tours, it seems great for players. It's more money. It's, you know, it's this, it's this. And I I'm just have the opinion that more money doesn't make for the most entertaining golf for, for fans. I think it's good to be rewarding the top players and, you know, getting them all on the same course at the same time. But uh, just curious if you had any perspective on the entertainment aspect of, of that. And I know you're sitting in a different seat than I am, but I'm, I'm curious to pick anybody's brain on that.
1: Yeah, no, I, I agree with you completely. Like I said before, I don't think having, 50 events on whether it's the now DP world tour or the PGA tour is overall thrilling for people to just tune in every week and watch whoever's playing in somewhat diluted fields with the same format, you know, um, I think. But what also has to happen is there needs to be some recognition. There needs to be separation. There's serious golf tournaments and then there's some entertainment stuff. And I you know, think back to a little bit years ago uh, like the skins game or uh, something and I know they're not dead and buried I know that there's the match these days and stuff but in in what we are used to seeing and of FedEx cups and rewards and and big things these kind of pale in comparison and are somewhat meaningless and I'm not I'm not sure we've d- dialed in the great entertainment yet. So I would definitely like to see some things change in that respect. I think there's a place for both, for sure. I think it'd be good. I think it'd be entertaining. I mean, for anyone listening who knows about cricket, cricket's done exactly that and it's continuing to evolve and it's been fantastic for the game. I mean, I've I've never played Phoenix, but it's kind of got that feeling to me that it is more about the entertainment <laughs> and, and that's absolutely fine in my thing you know it's my whether i want to go and play or not is a different thing and i and i think i will go and play sometime soon but um you know i i think we've got to look at all that kind of stuff and and help the game evolve and do a few different things to help grow the game and that's where i feel you know i was critical years ago They missed the boat with the olympics on that for me there was an opportunity to put some new formats in not reinventing golf but some teams, some mixed teams, some good stuff that could be really different to watch. And I I felt like just having the medal for the men and the medal for the women was a little soft for where professional golf is at and and not having a big enough impact.
0: People love team golf, man. I mean, people love the Ryder Cup, the President's Cup, the Solheim Cup. Like all of it is, it's your favorite weeks of the year as players. And that's just that... I a and granted there's some scarcity elements to that and you can't oversaturate that and um y- but there's a reason why that stuff is at the tip of your tongue whenever you guys tell stories I mean it's it's just a whole different whole different vibe so
1: yeah it would be interesting to explore for sure I think
0: well I want to go back to 2012 which I promise will follow up with 2013 very shortly after that but I, I, I don't remember this quote, but I found this. You said, shortly after the 2012 Open at Lytham you said, I'm very disappointed, but I played so beautifully for most of the week. I really shouldn't let this bring me down. I know I've let a really, really great chance slip through my fingers today, but somehow I'll look back and take positives from it. How hard, you know, how, first of all, how are you able to come up with that perspective shortly after heartbreak like that so quickly? And did that perspective maintain in the days, weeks that followed that tournament?
1: To be fair, I think it did. I mean, uh, thinking back to that, um, I I was in this place, like, leading into that Open for quite a while where I was so into my process. Uh, you know, I'd changed a few things because I wasn't happy with my performance in Majors for 10 years. I think I really played my worst golf at big events, and i was sure I won some other events, but was underperforming at the Majors. And all of a sudden, I kind of, you know... It, it, the open was on my clubs that last few holes and I let it slip. But I was so into the process that uh, the, the result didn't bother me so much then other than now I know I can win it, one of these things. You know, I, I, here it is, it was all up to me and I blew it, absolutely. Uh, and thinking about it now hurts more than <laughs> then. Because I think I was I was so into what I was doing, and I knew like if I keep doing this, I, I'll get I will get a result for sure. But when you think about what I, <laughs> the reality of what actually happened, it's pretty hard to think, wow i I, sh- I felt like I could have won the open and have a claret jug, and I don't, and I had a couple chances since, and I also didn't win those. so I mean for me, uh, it's probably one event now that you know i am i have to win before the end of my career
0: but do you think you would and honestly do you think you would have turned around and won the masters two two majors later if not for that heartbreak do you think if you win that claret jug do you think you also go out and win the masters
1: impossible impossible to know i i I would hope (laughs) i would like to but it made sure i was going to win the masters i mean i just I stayed in this process and this mindset of like, I will just keep doing what I have to do to get this done and get better and better and better. And I went to Keela just a few weeks later and I was playing so great. And I think it was Friday. It was so incredibly windy in the afternoon and like I was happy with my 75, but it kind of pushed me so far behind Rory who was steaming. And then I had to get in my head, right. It's eight more months before yeah. I get a, I get a crack at this thing. but. But I really it was it was very much a focus. and um, I remember my coach telling a story once that he could see in January when we were kind of getting things going for the new year. He's like, "No, nah, Adam's going to win the masters. Yeah. he could he could see like I hadn't wavered from that kind of focus and stuff. and I thought I thought that was interesting, but I think I was really just into what I was doing at that point.
0: I, I ask that strictly from the butterfly effect, you know, you know, maybe you would have won four majors had that happened. But, it, you know, your, your pairing probably changes going into the Augusta and the hype mm-hmm. around it probably changes like something would have been different. And you may have won by eight for all we know. But it, I, do, I, I remember when, when Kyle Stanley lost the, the farmers uh, uh, about 10 years ago now with the three shot lead on 18. He turned around and won Phoenix the next week, and he said quickly, "Like if I'd have won last week, I would not have won this week." But I learned from that, mm-hmm. from that, you know, it, it was more motivation, all that stuff. But I I remember, you know, Rory lost the 2011 Masters, you know, with a lead on the on the back, or I don't know if he made it to the back nine with the lead, but he mm-hmm. lost that. Turned around, won at Congressional, and this time period, you won two majors after Latham. I just remember that time period being this kind of redemption story and I remember uh, mm. I, I'm just always curious to pick your brain on, on you know if you think if there was something you took away from that that led to the 2013 but your answer on how pro- pro- process based you were I think is probably the answer to that
1: I I think so yeah there was there wasn't anything I mean I I also remember like the the hours after and doing media I mean it was a blur I was a bit numb I didn't know what to feel I mean part of me my head was in this process but I I know I've just blown it I I really didn't know even what my emotions were I couldn't believe it happened somewhat I was just uh numb was kind of the feeling I think I I used to describe that so you know fortunately I kind of stayed stayed in that and Uh, look I have to give credit to the team around me at the time I think they kind of brushed it off quickly and we didn't dwell on it too much we didn't overanalyze how bad was this and how bad was that and (laughs) fill my head there was so much good and that and that's what I really felt sooner once I got back on the range it was like oh yeah I'm still hitting it good I can do some damage with this so um, that that attitude certainly helped carry me through to augusta and i think all the mistakes i made live them down the stretch i didn't make any at the masters it was just yeah. really great golf and a good battle with angel yeah and so take
0: us you know i guess after winning the masters if we're gonna we'll zoom past the playoff and all that first did did life change for you maybe as much as you thought it would becoming a masters champion
1: yes and no i mean it is incredible how much recognition outside of golf the masters tournament gets yep. really I, I i haven't won other big major tournaments but the reach of the masters is really quite incredible i think i think it is the green jacket everything augusta does the you know the aura about the place people people know the green jacket and when they see it it it's quite it's like this mythical object <laughs> no one ever sees and that was surprising for sure and it's still to this day i mean i feel like i've signed every 2013 masters flag there is but they still get sent in on a weekly basis and it's it's never a chore to sign one of them but it's truly quite incredible how far the masters reaches could you tell
0: us the story of how the putt on the on the 10th green in the playoff went? I've heard I feel like I've heard some stories about, you know, your communication with Stevie on that, and I want to kind of transition that into into the effect a caddy can have on a player at your level, but can you tell us exactly how that went?
1: Yeah, I mean it was it was late and it was dark. I mean, under the trees down there. I don't know that I was thinking much about it at the time, but it was probably unrealistic to think we were going to play another hole, but you know, you you get a sense for these moments. And this was actually the first time in my life I had a putt to win a major championship, was this putt. I think I was really conscious of that at this moment, like this is to win. I've never said that to myself before in a major, other than when I was like 13 on the putting green and <laughs> back at the club at home, you know, I hit heaps of them. But uh, this one was actually to win. And we had a good look, and it was it was pretty dark, but we were having a good look. And I went back around, and we'd done our usual routine. Steve was doing his, and I was down behind the pot, and he's standing over me. And I said, "I think it's a cup," and, and he said, "Adam, this is two cups. I mean, it, he's doubled the read." But and I said, "Are you sure? Like, have you seen this pot over the years?" Is <laughs> kind of I said something like, "He said, Adam, it is absolutely two cups. It breaks a lot." And I said, I'll go with that. Sure enough. I mean, I hit it pretty firm too. I felt like I hit a pretty aggressive pot. It would probably would have gone four feet by, but it caught the left half of the hole and went in. Now, I don't know if I started exactly two cups, but it's a hell of a line to trot out at that moment. But that was the beauty of Steve. That was one of many great things he is as a caddy, but that's how he delivers stuff. There, There is no doubt in his delivery of advice and, of course, he can be wrong at times, but that's what you want to hear as a player, and it was a hell of a read.
0: And, and like, is it a? I mean, I, I, it's an obvious answer to be yes if it's gonna you know make the difference in that putt. But over seventy-two holes at a place like Augusta, is there any estimation as to how many little, how, how many shots he can he can help you save, and, and in what ways? Right? Example. That's a very clear example of that. But. You know, is there anything else you can think of in terms of Augusta or just having him on the bag in a major championship and at any location? What What is the benefit for somebody that is so in tune with golf like you? What can a caddy who's not hitting the shots change?
1: Uh, Well, he just has to really complement your style of play. Obviously, that's you know, it's like a relationship out there. It really is, and. If you're not hearing the right things, it's not going to go so well. So he has to understand, you know, how you're playing on a particular day, and then how aggressive he might want to talk you into some stuff or out of some stuff, potentially. But little things. I mean, another example from Augusta, and I'm I'm just picking random ones. You know, I hold the putt on 18 in regulation, the 72nd hole, and big celebration. I felt like I'd won the Masters. You know, if I, I could have won the Masters with that, and You know, I calmed down, and we're walking to the back of the green. Leash is putted out, and he says to me, "This isn't over yet." That was the first thing he said to me after all all of that, and it didn't let me switch off and relax. Like the work may not be done, and sure enough, Cabrera hit it to like two feet, and out we go again. And you know, a little thing like that—it was a great comment. He could tell I was so excited, and probably looking around thinking I was thinking about slipping the jacket on or whatever was going to happen. And, uh, you know, his comment, you know, he's still switched on. And so those little kind of things go a long way. And, uh, you know, he had a great understanding for the game of golf and how it was played at majors watching Tiger win. But those other little things, he had a good feel for his timing was good. And I I think great caddies have great timing.
0: Yeah, I think he was the first caddy to ever win a PGA Tour event, right? At, at Bridgestone after,
1: it's uh... <laughs> his. <laughs> that was his
0: greatest victory, if I, <laughs> if I remember rightly. He held it out on seventy, the seventy-second hole. Right? What was what was that aftermath like? Because that was, you know, for the listeners that may not remember, that was shortly after he separated with Tiger Woods. He's on your bag. You win the Bridgestone and. Television cameras go up and interview him on the 18th grade and he gives yeah. quite an interview. Did that bother you at all, how that played out at all? Or did you guys have a conversation after
1: that? It, it didn't bother me. You know, in all these things, you weigh up the pros and the cons. And without getting into Tiger and Steve so much, I think he was just almost letting off a little steam. You know, I, I think he, he said in interviews, he just felt he was just disappointed with the whole ending to what their incredible relationship was and he was probably hurt at that point and he, you know whether it's right or wrong or childish or not he was you know just trying to have a shot at tiger you know a bit of a cheap shot at tiger which was a, a funny thing to do it for me it didn't really take any of the gloss off what I felt I did there you know even there again and to go back circle back uh, on the final hole, I think I had a two-shot lead and I wanted to hit a seven iron in the middle of the green and he just looked at me and said it was a perfect number for a six, just hit it straight at the pin. I think I hit it to three feet, <laughs> one by three. You know, it's that timing and the sense of delivery. But he said a few things over the years <laughs> working with me that that certainly created created some trouble and, and that's Steve. You know, he's passionate about the game and passionate about stuff and opinion. he's opinionated and... Yeah, I didn't muzzle him quite as much as Tiger did, maybe.
0: <laughs> well, would he ever – I mean, he was obviously – all the years of experience he had on Tiger's bag. Did any of the Tiger-specific experience get translated over to you? Would he say things to you like, listen, you're not doing – like Tiger did this to to get better at this, this, and this. You need to be doing any of this. Was he that kind of involved in your game? Did you – basically, did you – you know, his experience with Tiger directly, did that dra- – did you draft off that at all?
1: Well, I tried to. I mean, I'd be a fool not to. Like, right. what was he doing here? What was he doing there? He would never say, Tiger did this. You should do this. He caddied for me for three weeks. And then he said, OK, I'm going to I can come and work for you full time because um, I was kind of loaning him at that point. But he said, your short games average is three part too much and something else. <laughs> he said, so you got to fix that and that was it it wasn't like you should try and do this it was like (laughs) that's it that's what my assessment is after three weeks uh and I kind of took that to heart and I went and I went and worked on that and tried to get better obviously but definitely we I picked his brain a lot about how Tiger played at majors and you know there were a lot of things but Steve was one of the final pieces of the puzzle for me to lift my game to play at the highest level I would say and and we used a lot of similar strategy uh, that he and Tiger used at major championships. And for a period there, I was certainly one of the most consistent performers at majors with Steve on the bag.
0: Well, drafting off that as well, tell us about uh, you a, a line that I heard you say somewhere about uh, you played with Tiger when you were an amateur and uh, how that made you think of your your professional career <laughs> after that. What was that? What was that initial experience like playing with Tiger as a youngster?
1: it was incredible. The Sunday before the US Open at Pebble Beach in 2000, I was still an amateur, but I decided to turn pro and I'd been given an invite on the European tour the week after that Pebble Beach US Open. And Tiger came to Las Vegas to see Butch just before going up to Pebble Beach and he said, you can go and play with Tiger. And I was nervous, obviously. And I played okay the front nine and I was one down and then he just kind of stepped It up a gear and he flew it onto a green, or I didn't fly on, but it went on a green at 375 yards on uh, the 10th. And this is in the year 2000. So (laughs) it was a big hit. I think he went something like five birdies and an eagle for the first six holes on the back nine. And that was the end of our match. And he shot 63 and fairly windy. It was a course record. And I walked off and felt like, well, I don't have much of a chance if. They all play like that on the tour. Unfortunately, he won the US Open by 15. So it kind of was a good thing for me to see. Yeah, I mean, it's really remarkable. I, I, I love sitting and telling stories of what it was like playing with Tiger and watching Tiger play at that time because I got to play with him a lot in 2000, 2001 and 2002. And I don't know if you want to call that the height of his powers, but it was... If it wasn't, it, it was pretty unbelievable. And you know, the control over every area of his game, I just, I'll be amazed if that we see someone else separate like he was able to ever again. And I don't,
0: it's hard, like obviously what unfolded in the years after that was incredible as well. He had some unbelievable seasons, 06, 07, you know, but it, it there was at least a time and injuries contributed in all kinds of things, but the gap got narrowed at least eventually. I mean, he's still the goat. Like he, it's hard for, but he's still underrated, I think, in my opinion, but that time period was the separation time period. Why was he able to do that then and not into like the 2010s and things like that? Is that like a, I, I want to say, I don't want to put the answer in your head, but I want to say technology just started bringing people closer together. Whereas when the sweet spot was smaller and the misses were punished he- more heavily, he was the only guy that could hit the center of the center of the face every time and swing as hard as he could and not and not encounter the same uh, punishment as other guys. Am I on to something there? Absolutely.
1: Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I think the driver is the the biggest change in uh, the evolution of the game, the biggest fundamental change uh, we go back through history before 2010s let's just pick a year but or 400 before 460 cc's let's say uh, you know the driver was as you got a longer club in your hand it became a harder club to hit throughout history of golf and driver was always the hardest and if you know you ask guys who played in persimmon days The days they weren't swinging good they hit three wood off the tee because the driver couldn't get a ball flight (laughs) you know because that that was really hard to hit well and i think um you know now it's gone from being the the hardest club generally to hit to kind of the most forgiving club in the bag because of the advancements and and the size of the driver head so there was definitely a bit of that but i I really, it'd be unfair to say that the only thing that separated Tiger was technology. This guy, you know, Butch said to me around that time in early 2000, when I started working with Butch, Greg Norman was the hardest worker he ever worked with. And Butch had worked with lots of guys over the years. And he said, Tiger Woods works harder. This guy was so focused on kicking everyone's ass and winning every tournament. You could see it and nothing was going to get in his way. He just took everything to such a ridiculous level. I mean, all, all of it. I mean, which parts do you want to talk about? I mean, the highlight reel is a joke. The parts, the chips, uh, the iron play, the long iron play, and the driving. You know, you watch him swing that driver at St. Andrews in 2000. You know, it, it is just unreal. The speed and then hitting that center of that small face is phenomenal stuff
0: really wish we had strokes gained in that time period it came shortly after that but <laughs> i want to see his strokes gained approach in the year 2000 i mean that had to be just astronomical it's incredible so yeah a couple more things here before we before we get you out of here you've you've played in i don't know how many president's cup is, cups now is it eight or nine i think it may be
1: nine nine maybe
0: yeah what is your thought on the on the status of that event and should it evolve in any kind or are you you know, you, you haven't been on a winning side yet, are
1: you dead set on all right, we're gonna we're gonna get this figured out until <laughs> yeah. we win one of these. Can we just win one and let yeah. it evolve then? No. <laughs> I'd love to win one, you know, just starting to develop this thing that they should just kick me off the team because I might be the jinx. Like since I've been on there, <laughs> there hasn't been a bit of win. But as I said before, I'm really open to the evolution of of these things. It, it it's hard for me to say. Obviously, the rider cup is a mammoth. It's it's one of those it may be the biggest event in the game of golf. You know, it, it's so huge, so everything else is going to struggle to live up live up to that. And certainly, uh, the Presidents Cup has. There's been lots of tinkering over the years with formats and rules and things like that. And it doesn't help that it's that you know the internationals haven't won one. So, really, at the moment, Ernie was fantastic. Trevor's taken the job this year and he's a good buddy of mine. And for for me, one, I want to get on the team. Two, our focus is to really come up with a challenge for the United States team, which is getting stronger and stronger too. So we've got our work cut out, but I really feel like as a team, we've made some strides and, you know, we were lagging behind, I think behind the scenes talent is there, but we didn't know how to put it together and Ernie really helped us do that the last time so hopefully some of those things carry over and we're gonna give them a run at quail hollow later this year
0: see i i do not think it's a coincidence at all that the president's cup that was not a driving contest which was royal melbourne was the most exciting the closest one of the closest competitions we've had i think that the more we can trend that thing towards like let's let's for towards golf courses that don't make it like I the, the PGA tour the US PGA Tour players are just it's same with the Ryder Cup and same with the President's Cup. The more like a PGA Tour golf course you play on, I have a feeling they're gonna have a big, bigger advantage. Whereas like if you neutralize a little bit of that driving distance, I think it just makes for a very entertaining product. That's more what the lines of where I was going, more so than like shift the format or anything like that. I'd love Okay. Skating.
1: Yeah, I've heard I've had lots of stuff thrown yeah. around. And yeah, I I agree with you, but, um, you know, we're going to Quail Hollow this yeah. year and we're, gonna, we're stuck, we're stuck with that. I think I don't, I don't think I'm going to get that one changed this that's year. A hurdle, yeah. uh, uh, I think it goes to Royal Montreal next and you know, it's slightly smaller course. We played there in 07, obviously things have changed since then. And I believe we can give them a good run this year. Yeah. You know, interestingly, we, we were leading through the team section of the event last time. And that's usually our weak point. and And we didn't perform in the singles and that's been where we were stronger in the past. So look, it's just a tough team to beat. I don't care. You can put the whole world versus the United States team and include Europe in that. And it's gonna be a hard team to beat because there are a lot of guys playing really great. Hopefully when we get the chance to kind of have an Im- influence on the course in Canada, um we might call you in for a little setup help
0: (laughs) (laughs) i'm so rooting for the us i just want to see it be a good
1: (laughs) it would be nice
0: a couple quick hits and we'll let you get out of here uh so you're you're known as one of the more fashionable guys on tour i think you take a lot of pride in your fashion but i'm going to ask you a different question in that regard what's your biggest fashion regret of your professional golf career
1: there are definitely pictures of me um, off the golf course that I really think, but I'm not going <laughs> to throw myself too far under the bus. I don't know. You know, I, I wore a Burberry early in my career and the full Burberry check shirt. Uh, I, I think I won a couple of events wearing it actually. And I look at that and I think, wow, is that really in style or was I just way off the mark at that point? Um, I've won some pretty bright clothes at times as well, but a lot of people have so I, I kind of figured I got away with it but I'm, I'm not so sure I'd be wearing like fluoro I think I wore like fluoro yellow pants at a US Open at Pinehurst or something and I just got ribbed by the crowd the inside around him my caddy was Tony Navarro and he's like Adam why are you doing this to yourself <laughs> but uh yeah, I mean I mean I'm a little older now. I I can't pull that stuff off. I don't know if I could before either, but <laughs>
0: The Burberry
1: that that was in style.
0: I will attest to that. That's I think what yeah. really, for okay. at least when uh you know my generation, that was what put you on the map. Is like, all right, I want to look like that guy on the golf course. But I was looking back at the the, the players' highlights. You you had a, a, a orange mm-hmm. shirt on. The sleeves were past your elbows. I think back then, which oh, I yeah. know that was the
1: style back then. But I, <laughs> I look back at that one. I was yeah. like,
0: oh, he wasn't a fashion icon yet. <laughs> yeah,
1: I was probably about twenty pounds lighter as well. <laughs> lighter as well. And uh everyone was wearing baggy clothes like Tiger. That's kind of where I was. Luck luckily, uh luckily, you know, I've I've matured a little bit. <laughs> and I also have Uniqlo as a sponsor, which is which is helpful. You know, I think I think we're a good fit for each other.
0: Last one, and I don't know if this is two different questions. You know, if, if I was to ask you your favorite Australian golf course or, you know, you have one round to play left in Australia, where do you pick it? I don't know if that's two different courses, but Ooh what's uh what what you got if you if i pin you down your one favorite if you if you were saying tomorrow you're going to play golf in australia where are you picking
1: yeah i'm going to upset someone with this yeah. answer down there so you know i'm going to say kingston heath golf mm-hmm. club is my is my one round i mean it's tough tough call but i really love kingston heath it's incredible it actually the 10th hole there is the short par 3 and when they play professional tournaments there we don't play it they take it out because it's such a bottleneck but you know i'll throw it in you know certainly the top top five or ten par threes in the world and it's about 115 yards
0: that whole area man if you're a golf junkie and you haven't made it to the sand belt of australia you're, you are truly missing out on uh, one of the great places in the game but yeah well, Adam, thanks so much for the time. We're looking forward to watching you this week at the slink Dubai Desert Classic. We really appreciate you spending some time with us, sharing some perspective on your career, and I uh, hope to do it again sometime down the line.
1: Yeah, thanks so much, man. I appreciate it. be The right club. Be the right club today. Johnny, yes. yeah, I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most.